If y'all have been with us, you know we've been spending the last several weeks in the book of Galatians, and we're about to wrap it up, which means we're also coming to the end of this Finding Freedom series, which is a huge bummer because this has been a great series, I know, for all of us. But the good news is that with the ending of every sermon series comes a new one. There is always another one. Sundays come every single week, uh, as those of us pastors are painfully aware of sometimes. Uh, Sundays come every single week, and we are so excited about this series we're going to be heading into in a couple of weeks. It's called Three Days and Denials. Three Days and Denials It's going to center around the Easter story. And trust me when I say you don't want to miss a single week of that series. But like I said, today we are going to be sort of rounding that corner and heading on the home stretch towards the end of the book of Galatians. And what we're going to see here as we shift towards the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 is a noticeable shift that Paul's going to make. He's going to make a shift from the, the spiritual truth, the spiritual foundation that he's laid to give us more of the practical application. Right? He's already answered the question for us of why we have been set free, what we have been set free from. Right? If you've been with us, you know we've been set free from the bondage to sin, and we've been set free by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And because of his sacrifice, we've been justified, and we've been reconciled back into right relationship with God. So that means that if you have received that truth, and if you've declared Jesus as Lord, you can now experience this freedom. You have now found this freedom that we all have been looking for. So that begs really one simple question. One simple question we're going to spend all of our time this morning trying to answer, and that's this. How do I walk in the freedom I have in Christ? Talked about why we have that freedom. Talked about what that freedom is, but how do we walk in the freedom we have in Christ? Like if you've received everything that Paul has said to this point, right, that you are a child of God, that you have been bought at a price, that you've been justified and redeemed, then how do you live in light of that? Because I think the truth is that many of, many of us have received those truths. Many of us have received those truths. And yet we still struggle to walk in the freedom that we know that we've been given. My goal today is to help you to answer that question of how do I walk in the freedom I have in Christ. To give you some practical guidance for walking in that freedom. But before we get there, I want to just lay a little bit more spiritual foundation. Because there's really one truth, one simple truth that these, this practical guidance is really going to be centered around. That'd be all right if I give you a little bit of spiritual foundation. I'm going to paint a picture for you, okay? So here's the scene. I'm 18 years old, and I'm driving home late one night from a friend's house. I'm in my 1967 candy apple red Ford Mustang. Yes, I know what you're thinking. I used to be cool. Y'all see me drive up here in a Prius sometimes, and you're like, this, this guy. Let's just say it's been a humbling journey since my days in high school. But anyways, I'm driving home, and maybe a little bit too fast. I don't know what the, the case is, but I get pulled over. This was not an unusual occurrence for me. Being a young guy driving a car like that, this happened all the time. So I pull over, and I start going through the motions. You know, it's the license, it's the registration, it's all that sort of stuff. And then the police officer asked me to step out of the car. I'm like, okay, this one's new. So I step out of the car, and he, he leads me over to this separate area, and he starts asking me more questions. I'm realizing, okay, this isn't your normal, you know, speeding violation. He asked me some more questions, and then he asked me, hey, can you follow my finger? I'm like, what's this guy doing? And I realized, oh, he's giving me a field sobriety test. I am stone cold sober. Like, I must just be a really bad driver, I guess, is the, the moral of that story. But he starts doing this finger test, right? He starts asking me these questions. And then the last thing he has me do is this walk and turn test. You guys know what that is, where you have to like walk in a straight line like this, 
right? And then you get to the end and you're supposed to like do this about face and walk back. Well, it seems really simple and it should be really simple. But when you're in that moment, it doesn't seem so simple. (laughs) I was so nervous because I knew, right, in that moment, what they're looking for is any sort of wavering, right? If I show any sign of imbalance, if I try to use my arms, or even if I just don't listen to the instructions very well, then he's got all he needs to take me in. Well, thankfully, I passed with flying colors. There's no dirt or drama here, at least not in this story, right? But as I was thinking about this, I hadn't thought about that in forever. God, I think God brought that back to my mind for a specific reason. I think there's a relevant point to this story. And I think that is that for us as humans, the reality is that each of us are impaired spiritually, right? That it's not something we can debate. It's just a simple fact. That's what sin does to us, right? When we, on our own, are impaired. We're unable to make good decisions. We're unable to walk straight. Are y'all tracking with me so far? Okay. But here's the thing. Scripture tells us over and over again that we are to walk straight. Look at Proverbs 4 with me. Verses 25 and 26 says, Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. In other words, walk straight. Right? Jesus himself in Matthew, I think it's chapter 7, he says, narrow is the path that leads to life. Implying that in order to inherit eternal life, what do we need to do? Walk straight. Well, this puts us in a bit of a pickle, doesn't it? Because how can we, being impaired by our sinful nature, walk a straight line? The answer is we can't, right? Not on our own, at least. So before we talk about what it looks like and how we are to walk in the freedom we have in Christ, we have to begin by acknowledging our need for the Holy Spirit. Because it's only by the power that's given to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit that we even have a chance to walk straight. That's why Paul is going to repeatedly talk to this in our passage today, telling us that we are to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. Because he knows that the only way for us to walk in the freedom found in Christ is to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Walking any other way will lead us towards sin and towards death. So as we get ready to shift our mind towards some more of the practical, I don't want you to lose sight of this simple spiritual truth. That none of this is possible unless the spirit of the living God is alive within you. Are y'all with me this morning? Are y'all with me this morning? There we go. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning in recognition of how much we need you. Lord, we are completely lost without you. Thank you for not only sending us your son to set us free, but for giving us the gift of your spirit so that we might walk in that freedom. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts this morning so that we might see, hear, and know that truth more clearly. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Well, we are going to be in Galatians chapter 4 this morning. So if you came armed with your Bible or your Bible app, you can go ahead and get those out. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. And as you do that, I want to just briefly acknowledge and thank Pastor John for the incredible word that he delivered last week. Man, if you were not here, you definitely need to go back and listen to some of that. He really took what I think is one of the most complex and challenging portions of the letter to the churches in Galatia, and he explained it just 
brilliantly. And so uh, thank you, Pastor John, for doing that work. Uh, we're going to benefit from a lot of the heavy theological lifting that he did last week. We're going to benefit from that this week. And if you remember, like the, the more confusing part of that passage last week centered around Paul's sort of seemingly random inclusion of Abraham into this letter. Right? He brings us back to Abraham and back to the promise that God made to him in Genesis chapter 12. It was the promise that he would be the father of a great nation. The promise that the world would be blessed through him. And it might seem like it came out of nowhere, but Paul uses it brilliantly to really settle this debate that was going on in the Galatian church. Right? He said that the law was not the promise given to Abraham. Y'all remember that? That the law didn't come for another 430 years, and even then the law was just a placeholder. Right? It was Jesus who would be the fulfillment of God's promise. It's Jesus and not the law that God would use to bless the world. And that was a hugely important distinction to make at that time. And it's still really a hugely important distinction to make in our time as well. Because whether we like it or not, God isn't going to use our traditions or our religiosity to change the world. He's going to continue doing what he's always done by using his son to change and to bless the world. That's why we here at Awaken are unashamed to speak and to preach the name of Jesus. Because we're not after some sort of behavior modification. We are after true and total transformation. That can only be found in Jesus. So what Paul's going to do now as we shift our focus to the end of chapter 4 is he's going to revisit the story of Abraham. Like I said, we're going to benefit from what Pastor John unpacked last week. But as he revisits this story, he's going to do so with a little bit of a different purpose. This time his intention is to point us to the true source of transformation. So with God's promise to Abraham still fresh on your mind, let's look now together at chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So what Paul is doing here is he's connecting to the practical application of God's promise, like how this actually played out. We heard the promise last week, but now we're seeing what happened after that promise. And so to understand the point he's trying to make, I need to do a little bit further unpacking of this story. So stick with me here. If you guys know this story, then you know Abraham received God's promise when he was pretty old, right? And his wife was well beyond her childbearing years. Right, so it would have been reasonable, I think, for Abraham to expect God to have fulfilled this promise like, pretty much immediately, right? Like, if I'm Abraham hearing this, I'm already old, I'm like, all right, I'm going to be holding the baby here in like nine months. I mean, this is God after all, and he's like, my clock is ticking. Like, surely this is going to happen pretty soon. But if you go back and look at the story in Genesis, what you'll actually see is that it would be 25 years before God would fulfill his promise, before Sarah, Abraham's wife, would get pregnant with Isaac. Which is why Paul reminds us here in Galatians 4 that Abraham actually had two sons. Because what happened is, after about 15 years, well, Abraham and Sarah, they got kind of tired of waiting on God to fulfill his promises. So what did they do? They took matters into their own hands. They thought, hey, maybe it's on me to fulfill God's promise. So Sarah goes and, and gets her servant girl, Hagar, brings Hagar to Abraham and said, hey, here's an alternative way for you to fulfill God's promise. And, of course, the result of that union between Abraham and Hagar is Abraham's first son, Ishmael. This is the one that Paul refers to as the son of a slave born according to the flesh. It would be a whole other 10 years 
before God would fulfill his promise and we would get the son born through the free woman, born through promise, right? That's Isaac. And here's how this connects, right? Here's why Paul points us back to this story. He wants to point out for us that Abraham and Sarah, they never stopped believing in God's promise. They just started believing that they were the ones that were supposed to fulfill it. Do you see that? They never stopped believing that God was going to fulfill his promise. They started believing it was up to them to make it happen. They attempted to fulfill the promises of God through a scheme of the flesh. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Hey, you Galatians, you're doing this exact same thing with your salvation. You're attempting to fulfill the promises of God through the works of your flesh. The Galatian church, they never stopped believing in God's promise. They just started believing it was up to them to make it happen. Are you all with me? So by telling this story, what Paul does is he draws a dividing line. And he puts flesh on one side and he puts spirit on the other. He says you can either walk over here, you can be driven by the desires of your flesh, or you can walk by the spirit. Or you can try to fulfill God's promises by yourself, which is represented with Ishmael, or you can allow God to be the one to fulfill his promises, which is represented with Isaac. And that line, it continues Right? Because when you choose to be driven by the desires of your flesh, you remain a slave to sin rather than being set free in Christ. And you rely on your works to be what save you rather than simply believing in faith. Paul tells the Galatian church, hey, the choice is up to you. But make no mistake about it, there is a line that has been drawn. And the challenge, like we talked about earlier, is that left on our own, we will always choose flesh. We will always choose flesh. That's why Paul emphasizes in chapter 5, verse 1, the need for us to stand firm. He says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He gives the encouragement to stand firm because he knows that it takes fight to stay in the faith. It's not easy to walk this path. It's easy to get distracted and take our focus off of what God is doing in our lives. And he knows that unless we keep in step with the Spirit, we will constantly find ourselves giving in to the flesh and veering from that narrow path we were meant to walk. And here comes the practical guidance. Look with me at verses 16 through 18. Now that Paul has driven this dividing line, he says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now this is a, a critical point that Paul is making. Because what he's doing is he's pointing us to the fact that there is a war that is being waged for the soul of every believer. He says there is an internal struggle that's going on between spirit and flesh. One wants to conform us into the image of Christ. The other one wants to conform us into the image of this world. And the painful truth, family, what makes this conversation so critical is the fact that most of us are even unaware that this battle is being fought. We're just unaware of it. And what will happen is if we remain unaware, then we'll continue to be conformed by our flesh to look like the world rather than being transformed by the Spirit to look like Christ. This is why I want to spend time this morning talking about spiritual formation. Spiritual formation. Because whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, each one of you is being spiritually formed by someone or by something. 
We're all being formed. Every minute of every hour of every day, we are being constantly formed. The only question is whether this is happening intentionally or unintentionally. Whether it's a result of pursuing Jesus and letting him shape your life or allowing your circumstances and your environment to shape you. So we're going to go a little bit into the classroom. I wish I had like a whiteboard up here, but I've got this screen behind me. We're going to go into the classroom a little bit. So I can show you what it looks like when your spiritual formation is happening unintentionally, right? When your flesh is at the driver's wheel. So this is a graph here I'm going to put up on the screen. There it is. This comes from a gentleman named John Mark Comer. If you're unfamiliar with John Mark Comer, he is just an incredible guy, a pastor out in Oregon. Uh, he's bringing together the best of like biblical truths, spiritual formation, and social science. Just brilliant guy. If you have a chance to read his books, Trust me, you will not regret it. But what he's done is he's developed this graph to show us what it looks like when we are unintentionally being formed by the world. And he points out three key factors that form us. The first of those factors are the stories that we believe. These are the ideas that we hold to be true. Now, they don't have to be true. The thing that's important is if we believe that they're true. These can come from our family. These can come from Facebook I won't even go on and list any more examples, but you guys get the idea, right? As long as we believe that they're true, they're going to shape us. So let me give you an extreme example. Let's say the idea that you believe to be true is that since somebody has a different skin color than you, they should be treated differently. It doesn't matter that that's absolutely false. All that matters is if you believe in it, it's going to shape you. It's going to direct your life. The second factor is our habits. These are the things that we do, and just like the stories we believe, they shape us. I heard a pastor friend of mine say it this way when referring to our habits. He says this, listen, we crave what we consume, and what we consume, we become. We crave what we consume, and what we consume, we become. Some of you Starbucks addicts just realize you are a venti chai latte. Congratulations. <laughs> we crave what we consume, and what we consume, we become. That was like the light version. I could have mentioned all kinds of other things that you guys probably are, okay? What I'm saying here is if you're not intentional about your spiritual formation, your habits will be driven by your flesh, and your mind and your soul are not going to be far behind. So unintentional spiritual formation, it happens through the stories, the ideas we believe. It happens through our habits. And the third factor is our relationships. This might be the strongest factor of all because people have a powerful influence on us. That's why we oftentimes become like those we spend time around. So what happens, family, is when this unintentional spiritual formation happens, when our flesh leads the way, we slowly begin to change. That's what that bottom line is about. It happens over time, not all at once, not usually anyways, but slowly, incrementally. It just creeps. So you might not notice it day to day. You might not notice it week to week. But when you look back over months and over years, you'll realize those ideas, those habits, those relationships, how they formed you into something that looks more like the world than like Christ. And Paul shows us what this looks like. Look at verses 19 through 21. This is the result of the fruit of our unintentional spiritual formation. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And I know you're thinking, hey, I don't do any of these things. But it's that slow creep. It all begins somewhere. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
So he doesn't just tell us what it looks like when our flesh leads the way. He gives us a glimpse into our future, saying that if these are the fruit of your life, if you find joy in doing these things, then you will have no place in the kingdom of God. So you can choose to be conformed by your environment or, assuming you'd like to inherit the kingdom of God, you can be transformed by the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at what that looks like. Now, I've got a similar graph. I'm going to put them up side by side. And this is going to outline that for us as well. And as you can probably tell, it looks almost identical to the one we looked at before. But as you look a little bit closer, and as I explain this to you, you're going to see that it actually runs counter to everything we just talked about. Because the reality is, right, transformation in Christ, led by the Spirit, is going to run counter to the formation of the world. So that first factor is teaching. This runs counter to the stories that we believe. This is what y'all are doing right now, sitting under biblical teaching. Not that it only happens on Sundays, but at least in our context, this is one of the main ways that it happens. Right? And it's not just about correction either. Again, it's not about behavior modification, because the best teaching actually gives you a vision for what you, life you were created for. I love reading from Jesus, because it's not just Jesus standing up in front of people saying, do this and don't do this, do this and don't do this. No, what is he doing? He's speaking to the lies. He's speaking to the stories that people were believing. And he's casting a vision for what they were created for. He's casting a vision for what eternity looks like. That kind of teaching, it casts vision for our lives. And what that does is it shapes us into the followers of Jesus we were meant to be. The second piece is practice. Practice runs counter to our habits. Because our habits are driven by the flesh. But practice is what happens when we allow the spirit to take the wheel. The churchy term that you'll hear for this often is spiritual disciplines. Right, these are practices like fasting, Sabbath, prayer, solitude. Practices that are designed to strengthen you by making room for the Spirit to work within you. Does that make sense? I think it's an important distinction to make. Because I think so often we think of the spiritual disciplines like we do of ordinary disciplines. Let me give you an example, right? Ordinary disciplines are things that you do because you can do them in order to learn something that you can't do. So I'll give you an example. I like to run, which means I do not lift weights. I can't lift weights, right? And so if I wanted to learn how to bench press my own weight, not only would I need an act of God, but I would need to actually do some disciplines to get to that point. So I might do some push-ups, right? I can do a few push-ups. Doing push-ups long enough, I can eventually, hopefully, learn how to bench press my own weight. You do something that you can do in order to learn something that you can't do. Spiritual disciplines, on the other hand, are when you do something that you can do, like reading your Bible, like fasting, like praying, like spending time in solitude, in order that the Holy Spirit might do what you can't do. Do you see that difference? I don't know about y'all, but man, every time I read my Bible, I'm like, I hope this makes me better at reading my Bible. That is not the point. The point of fasting isn't just to be getting better at not eating food. It's opening up space for the Holy Spirit to do what you can't do. Ultimately, that's to look like Jesus, right? We can't do that on our own. When we practice these spiritual disciplines, we leave room for the Spirit to work within us and to make us look like Christ. So we have teaching, we have practice, and lastly, we have community. Now, community runs counter to relationships because these are the people in our lives that are following Jesus just like us. These are the people that share a common goal. Now, I was meeting with a group of guys yesterday morning, and I told them, this is where I wish church looked more like a CrossFit box. Y'all know what a CrossFit box, that's what they call their gyms, for those of you who don't know what it is. Anybody ever been to a CrossFit box? Okay, only a few of you. So let me, let me describe what it's like going to a CrossFit box. 
CrossFit's where they do, the, I don't know how far I need to go back, right? It's where they do like the weightlifting and all that sort of stuff. Uh, if you don't know a CrossFit person, well, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you, they'll find you, it's all good. <laughs> CrossFit's not my thing. But I've been a couple of times, and I can tell you, it is the most biblical form of community I have ever seen, including what I often see in the church. And here's why. CrossFit boxes were designed for two things, exposing weaknesses and giving encouragement. Right? They, you go there to have your weaknesses exposed and to receive encouragement to transform your body. Right? If you're going to go to one, you see people walking in, they're really unashamed of the fact that they have weaknesses because they know that's the place where they're supposed to bring their weaknesses in order that they might be encouraged to transform and to make themselves better. Isn't that what this community should look like? We should be encouraged to bring our brokenness, to bring our sickness, to bring all those things, knowing that this is the place, out of all other places, where we can receive encouragement and experience transformation. I mean, Paul certainly thinks that. Look with me, chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Intentional spiritual formation happens through teaching, through practice, and through community. And of course, these are all driven by and through the Holy Spirit. This is what leads to transformation. It's less about what we are doing, more about what's being done to and through us. And just like with unintentional formation, it happens over time. So you may not see those results day after day or even week after week, but when you look back over months, when you look back over years, some of you even over decades, you will see that your faithfulness over long periods of time, it yields incredible transformation. Let me just point this out just so that I'm crystal clear here. This transformation doesn't come from us. It comes from the spirit within us. And what it leads to then are the fruits of the spirit flowing out of us. With all that in mind, look at verses 22 and 23. Paul says, this, when you are formed spiritually by the spirit, the fruit of the spirit then is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Family, when you are walking in the freedom you have in Christ, when the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, these are the fruits your life will display. So what I want to ask you to do is to, is to look at this next image I'm going to put up and just take a moment. Do some introspective work to understand which of these fruits is your life currently bearing. Let's say life throws you a curveball. Something unexpected comes your way. Some struggle. Is your response to, to lash out in anger, right, in frustration, or to get super anxious, or is it to be patient, trusting in God's perfect plan? Or let's say a friend hits you up and needs some help. Is your initial response to try to find your own way out of it? Or are you able to display kindness by serving them, even if it costs you something? Listen, this isn't meant to be an exercise in shame or in guilt. And so if you're feeling that, I'd, I'd cast it out in the name of Jesus. But this is a way in which you might measure your own spiritual growth. Again, let's let this be a place where our weaknesses can be exposed so that we might receive encouragement 
to experience that kind of transformation that comes through Jesus. Our goal is not behavior modification. It is heart transformation. But the reality is that process can't begin until we identify the fruit in our life and we trace it all the way back to the root. So if you're experiencing some of that brokenness, some of that barrenness, don't go sit in that. Identify it for what it is, lies, conformity to the ways of the world, and then pursue the gifts of the Spirit. Pursue the Spirit so the Spirit can tell you what is true about you, not the world. What you'll find is that 100% of the time, those acts of the flesh, they go back to the ways that the world is forming us. And those fruits of the Spirit, 100% of the time, they're going to go back to a life that's lived in pursuit of Jesus. It's the root that ultimately determines the fruit. And so all of that, family, brings us back to that one simple question I posed at the beginning of this message. How do I walk in the freedom I have in Christ? Paul is actually going to answer that for us. You could have just read ahead and got the answer for yourself, but here it is as I invite the band back up. It's verses 24 and 25. Paul says this, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So Paul says, this is how you walk in the freedom you have in Christ. You crucify the flesh and you keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, you stop believing that it's up to you to fulfill God's promises and you start trusting in God that he will be faithful like he said he would be. Because here's the thing, family, when you look at that assessment we did a moment ago, the reality is that none of us aced that test. None of us. Each one of us has our hangups. Each one of us has our areas in life where we may not be producing the fruit that we should be. And it's not because we're screw-ups. It's because we on our own are impaired. Because we on our own are unable to produce this fruit. So it's time that we embrace this truth, family, that no matter how hard we try, that this fruit can't be produced by us. It can only be produced in us by the power of the Holy Spirit who is transforming us into the image of Christ. And that's ultimately what we're after, isn't it? That's why this list of fruits is not just a measuring stick for our spiritual lives, but it's a description of what's true of us because we are in Christ Jesus. In fact, I want you to look at the list one more time. Only this time I want you to see it for what it really is the most accurate description of Jesus you will ever see. Jesus is love. Jesus is joy. He came to bring this world peace. Jesus embodies patience. He exudes kindness and goodness. He is faithful. He is gentle. He is the very definition of self-control. So listen, I know your flesh may see this list as a list of things that you must do. But put that to death, family. Because the good news of the gospel tells you that this is a list of things that Jesus was for you. And since now he is in you, these things can be true of you. I need to say that again because I don't think that sunk in with some of you. The good news of the gospel tells you that this list is a list of things that Jesus was for you. And since now he is in you, these things are true of you. Family, the fruit of your life, just like your salvation, it's not the result of good works. It's not the result of your own efforts. It's the result of Christ's love for you that now flows through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're here this morning, 
And these fruits aren't evident in your life. And I want to invite you to put your faith in Jesus today. So the Bible tells us that when we receive that, that our faith will be credited to us as righteousness, which means you will no longer be impaired. You'll no longer be a slave to your sin. Your branches will no longer be barren because the spirit of the living God will take up residence in your life. And these fruits, these fruits will just flow from you. All you have to do is believe. So I'm not gonna ask you to stand up or raise your hand or anything like that, but if that's you, I'm gonna be in the back as we start to worship again. Would you just come find me? Come find one of your pastors. We would love to pray with you. That's how I was planning to end the message. But as I was sitting in our office this morning, God gave me this image. And I don't know how many of you have been driving around in your neighborhoods and seeing the trees that have been so damaged by the ice storm we experienced. But as I was driving through, I saw these trees and you see that like springtime is here, right? There's green coming, there's fruit coming. But in the midst of those healthy branches is brokenness. It's barrenness. And I just felt the spirit prompt me to just call that out. Like there are some of you here who have been resisted, that there are certain parts of your life that you have kept locked or hidden from the spirit. And so yeah, certain parts of your life, man, it may be barren fruit. Your family may be doing well. Your job may be going well. Your friendships may be healthy, but there's brokenness there. There is a barrenness. If that's you this morning, let me just invite you back to Jesus. Invite you back to our true source. That brokenness, that barrenness, it's a sign that you are trying to do things on your own. That you are trying to fulfill God's promises by white knuckling your way through life, by holding on to those things so tightly rather than allowing the spirit to work within you. If that's you, let me just point you back to the words of Jesus himself. He tells us in John 15 that he is the vine. We are the branches. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And then he says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. So come back to Jesus. Live a life that is rooted in him and you will find that you will bear much fruit.